Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. While in office, Franklin Roosevelt thought a lot about food. He craved fish cooked in clay, had pheasants flown to him from Scotland, and also had a taste for buffalo tongue. And yet, his White House kitchen had a very different reputation. Ernest Hemingway describes this dinner as one of the worst he's ever had. You know, a limp beans, a a very thin soup. And he says, you know, I will not be going back there ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Today, Alex Prudhomme shares food stories from presidential history, from what went so wrong under FDR to the meals that shaped American politics. Jefferson convenes this wonderful dinner with James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. And it's only a slight exaggeration to say that this particular dinner saved the Republic. That's coming up later on the show. First, it's my conversation with the late Raghavan Iyer. I had the privilege of speaking with him in January about his book, On the Curry Trail, Chasing the Flavor that Seduced the World. At the time of our interview, Raghavan was battling cancer, and he passed away a few weeks later on March 31st. Here we discuss his book, his culinary philosophy, and the impact of his legacy. Raghavan, welcome to uh, Milk Street. Chris, it's my pleasure to be with you. Uh, one of my editors was in Mumbai a couple of years ago, and he, he came back convinced that curry was a process rather than a recipe. And his summary was, you heat oil— you add whole spices, you add the flavorings, you know, the sofrito, then ground mm. spices, and then the main ingredients. Do, do, is there some truth to that, that it's it's a process, it's a structure for a recipe, as opposed to a recipe of sorts? Uh, yes and no. I always feel like curry's as elusive as trying to pick up a broken glass of mercury. There's no way of determining exactly. And so when I wrote the first book, 660 Curries, that was a curries book about the curries of the Indian subcontinent. And there, curries have everything to do with sauces and gravies and really nothing to do with spices. And then the British came along and 
they had their cooks put together a cornucopia of spices and labeled it as curry powder. And then they took that to the rest of the world and said, you know, this is what curries are all about. You know, and as is very true of the English, I mean, they like to conceptualize everything and put it in a neat little package. Um, but on the flip side, India cannot be any more opposite in the way they right. think in terms of food. And so just in India and the subcontinent, curry is not a flavor. It's an entity. Curry is not a spice. But the rest of the world, when they talk about curries, you know, they are referring to curry powders. So if a recipe calls for garam masala, is that an almost entirely useless thing? Because it's, there's a, a thousand, it just depends on yes, what it kind depends of blend on the region. you yeah. Yep, and the term garam means, it's a Hindi word which means warm. And the word masala is a blend. So it's a blend of spices that is determined to provide some warmth to your body. I'm talking about spices like clove, cinnamon, cardamom, peppercorns. My biggest pet peeve, uh, if I can use your amazing platform, Chris, <laughs> is to make the differentiation between hot and spicy. People say, ooh, that's spicy. Oh, I don't like spicy. Every time I hear that, I feel a little part of Raghavan dies <laughs> because I feel like I come from a world of spices. So 98.9 or 99% of the spices we use are flavor-producing spices and aromatics. And to characterize an array of spices by attributing it to heat, I think is, is such a disservice. In fact, in Hindi, there is a separate word, which means heat. There's a separate word for spice. Mirchi or tikha is the word for heat. And masaledar is a word for spices. Where are we, you know, cookbook authors in the United States, in understanding the Indian subcontinent and its cooking. I mean, there is, there really is no such thing as Indian cuisine. There's so many different dialects and areas. So where are we on that road to, to starting to discover what's there? It seems like we've taken the first three or four steps, but it's a, it's a journey of many miles. I would say it is a journey of many, many, many miles. And it's also, I feel like we've barely stepped onto this, you know, journey. And, um, once we really get into the world of regionality of Indian food, you know, like now we look at Italy, right? We look at all these regions of Italy. I feel like then, okay, now we're getting into the nitty-gritty in the heart of it. This is the old, you know, a legacy left by the colonials is, you know, trying to capture everything. And, and it's like, oh, let's put it all in a convenient label and say Indian food. And that's one of the reasons why I also don't like the words classic or traditional. I remember sometimes I'll have Indians are very opinionated about their food. <laughs> and um, I've done book signings, and some of them will walk up to me and say, what you're doing is not Indian, you know, and it's not classic or it's not traditional. I said, can you define to me what classic or traditional is? And they say, well, my mother does it this way. And I say, you know, I'm not your mother. Um, and <laughs> so what people think about, you know, they think about what they grew up with, which is different. You know, as I get older, I guess I get 
a little bolder with my thoughts. You know, I've always said what my disease has taught me is to speak my mind. And um, I'm at a point where it's like, I really don't care. You know, you just <laughs> say what you do. And um, right. so there's a sense of freedom that comes with it, which I have grown to really love. And the freedom, you know, sort of filters into the cooking, you know, and I cook with unabashed abandon, you know, and it's like, I feel like cooking with no borders in a way. You know, I lived in India for 21 years, and I've lived in the U.S. for almost 41 years. So I feel like I can see my own birth country through a foreigner's eye. So what would you like to leave behind most in all of this? I mean, in terms of your contribution to food and Mm-hmm. the pleasure of food and the education about food. Is, is there something in particular you, you you hope you leave behind? Yeah, I look at, I was having a conversation with my family and I was having a bad day and I said, what, what the hell am I leaving behind? My sister was a physician. She said, look at the legacy you're leaving behind. She said, you've written seven books. You have influenced thousands and thousands of people. And um, I said, true. I said, you know, I've had James Beard Awards. I've had IACP Awards. I've had an Emmy, you know. And I thought to myself at the end of the day, it has nothing to do with these awards and the accolades and the books. To me, ultimately, food is about relationships. You can put two strangers, you put them in front of food, and the whole ambiance and the personality changes and I feel like that's what I want to leave behind is that message of food being a medium of delivering joy and peace and positive relationships well it's the uh, invitation Mm -hmm. that's the thing right yep it's the openness I'm opening my heart I'm opening my home Mm. I'm opening up my meager kitchen for you. Raghavan, thank you. It's been, um, it's been a pleasure, but it's also been an honor. Thank you. Oh, the honor and pleasure is mine as well, Chris, and I thank you for their time. That was the late Raghavan Iyer. Raghavan was a teacher, an author, and also an advocate for Indian cooking. His work paved the way for a whole new generation of immigrant cookbook authors here in America. Now it's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television and author of Home Cooking 101. So, Chris, I've been thinking about it for myself, but for you, who are your mentors? From a Culinary or philosophical point? <laughs> no, culinary. culinary. Yeah, Marie Briggs. She was the town cook, a baker in my town of Vermont. She cooked for Norman Rockwell. What? Yeah, back in the late 40s, she was his cook. He went to Great Barrington in the early 50s, but he lived in the next town. And uh, she cooked, you know, molasses cookies, anadama bread, white bread. She cooked all the meals for the farmhands. She didn't have running water. She had a pump in the sink. She had a wood-fired cook stove. Wow. And so... Cooking was integral to the life of that farm, and she was the center of the town in many ways. So I think 
that's how I got my love of cooking because it was the ties that bind people was right. her cooking. And I love that food too. So Nice. So you weren't expecting that. You were expecting some fancy French Yeah, chef, I right? really was. Yeah. That's a lovely story. Thank yeah. you. You're welcome. Okay. Take a call. Yeah. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Manoli in New Orleans. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? Pretty good. Great. Doesn't sound like I'm as good as you because you sound great, but <laughs> how can we help you? I really love making paella, and I want to know how to get that nice crust at the bottom and the sides and when it's cooking in the pan. Well, how big is your pan? What kind of pan are you using? Let's start with that. I've got my hands out, and that's not going to do you any good. It's probably 16 inches. Oh, so it's a big pan. Okay. Are you yes, doing this over one burner on a gas stove? How are you cooking it? Electric and two. Okay. Well, that's not so bad. When you put the ingredients in the pan, how deep are the ingredients? An inch or two or four or five inches or what? Um, About two inches. Well, that's about right. So far, you get 100%. Oh, well, thanks. I didn't realize. Good. The reason you don't get the saccharat at the bottom is because there's too much Chris, liquid. Chris, you've got to explain what saccharat is. It's just that crusty bottom that is why the people love part of, paella. Yeah. So, yes, it is so yummy. The reason you don't get it is because you haven't evaporated all the liquid in the ingredients. And so ah. if it's wet, it's going to steam. So you have to yes. cook it until all that liquid evaporates. Don't stir okay. it. You don't want to stir it. Yes. And then you sort of hear it start to crackle, et cetera. But then you got to get it off the heat, you know, after you hear that for 10 seconds or 15 seconds. The only other issue would be, are you getting enough heat in the pan when you add all those ingredients? Because if you're not getting enough heat, it's like trying to stir fry, you know, in a wok that doesn't have enough heat. You end up steaming. So mm. what you're probably doing is not getting a really – good enough heat and you're not evaporating enough liquid. That would be my guess. So I will work on my level of courage and increase the heat and maybe that will help. And use your ears because when the liquid evaporates, it's going to make that crackly sound. And once you hear that, give it, you know, a few seconds, but then 10 seconds and then take it off. Let me just ask two more questions. Yes. One is what kind of rice are you using? Bomba, if I can get it. Or the Italian, I want to say, arborio. Yes. Yeah. That's the right kind of rice. She answers everything, right? She is. She is. Yeah. What is the pan made out of? Carbon steel. That's correct also. Six answers, absolutely correct. Yeah. Okay. Good, more heat. Good, good. You need okay, more heat. Good. Yeah, I think that's it. I need more courage because I'm always scared I'm going to burn it. We researched this once. We were in Spain and... I think one of the original recipes for this were snails and rabbit. Yes, correct. Yeah. Yes. It was yes. not seafood. So. No. It was a frugal dish. You know, it was yeah. something you made with what you found near you. Yes. It's also an excellent what do we have in the fridge that must be used kind of dish. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like many of our favorites. So many paellas people cook, though, are like six or eight inches deep in yeah. a Dutch oven. Yeah. And it's just all that is oh. is rice casserole. Yeah, I really hope everybody was listening to you, Manoli, because everything you said is correct. Yeah. You're doing everything right. Oh. So it's got to be the heat. And that maybe you're not waiting till you hear the popping. All right. Patience, Patience. Courage, courage, and heat. Yes. Correct. <laughs> correct. P. Yes. C H. Patience, yeah. courage, heat. There you go. There P-C-H. You go. All right. Okay. Thanks for calling and give that a shot. Let yes. us know. Yeah, do. Oh, I 
Michelle, thank you so much. You have also very much encouraged me that I was doing the right things because I did not really know for sure. Oh, so no. thank you. You got 100%. Yep. Top your class. All right. I'll let you know how it comes out. Pretty soon you'll be making paella with Jose Andres. Yeah. Yes. That would be nice. <laughs> Any we day like now. Oh, I mean? wish. Yeah. yeah, that would be very nice indeed. <laughs> All right. Take care. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Hey, thanks a bunch. Yep. Take good care. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Mo Street Radio. If you're stumped in the kitchen, give us a ring anytime, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Eli. Hi, Eli. Where are you calling from? I am calling from Philadelphia. And how can we help you today? So we have a bit of a conundrum. We have a perfect brown butter chocolate chip cookie recipe. And then we learned about toasted milk powder as a way to bring the brown butter flavor out more. And so we tried it and we tried adding uh, milk powder to the butter that we were browning. And the first time it went great. And we haven't been able to make it work since. And we've tried putting it in the butter and browning it in the butter. We tried toasting it in the oven, which works, but doesn't taste as great. And the last thing that we've heard about recently is trying it in a pressure cooker. So we're really wondering what is the best way to toast milk powder? Wow. Well, let me first say that when you brown butter, just plain old butter, what happens is all the water evaporates from the milk solids, and the milk solids stick to the bottom of the pan, and it's the milk solids toasting that flavor the butter oil. So by adding, you know, the toasted powdered milk, you're adding more nuttiness. What happened? You said the first time it worked and the second time it didn't? Yeah, so first time we added it to the butter, you know, as we were melting it and browning it, and it turned out great, and the cookies were great. But after that, it turns into little gritty clumps. Did you use no matter what we do anything yeah. different? Different milk Not powder? Not that we know of. The only thing that we can think of that might have been different is the temperature. The butter might have been different when we added the milk powder, but we got it right the first time, and so didn't take great notes about what we did for that time. Did you add it at the beginning or once the butter was already brown? Not when it was brown, like after it had melted, mm-hmm. but not when it was in the browning process. Huh, that's weird. And what was wrong with it was that there was little flaky black bits in there, huh? No, it wasn't that. It was like the texture of like sprinkles, right? Like that super oh, so it was crunchy, grainy. like... It was grainy. Yeah, very grainy. A simple solution, although I have a feeling if you got it right the first time, maybe it has to do with the temperature, but a simple solution would be to puree it in a blender or something like that to get the powdered milk finer. Well, the graininess doesn't happen when we toast it in the it, oven. It's when you put it in the butter. We've actually had this problem in the kitchen. And one solution is to toast the milk powder separately like you're doing, putting it in a small food processor, and then adding it to the dry ingredients. Don't add it to gotcha. the butter. Do the butter separately. Because I think what's happening is when it's added to the butter is you get the clumping, and maybe that's an issue about temperature. But if you put it in with a flour, I think you might avoid that problem. We did this with a cake recipe that had brown nonfat milk powder in it. And by adding it to the dry ingredients, not the butter, it seemed to work. But you did puree the milk powder? Yes. Okay. That makes sense. Do you have any thoughts on the pressure cooker? Because that was the most recent thing we came across, was putting the milk powder in the pressure cooker and putting it on the Instapot until it was equivalently toasted. Did you try it? Not yet. 
I don't really think that makes a difference. It's just know. the speed. It's just toasting it, and you still are going to have the grains. Try it. It's interesting. <laughs> I mean, look, that's kind of fun. Yeah, give that it a That wouldn't shot. clog the vent? I don't know. Well, he's, how much powder it's is he using? It's in a jar. He's using a quarter yeah, cup of Yeah, you put it, it in a something. jar and then put it in. Yeah, I don't know. Give it a shot. Okay. What's the worst that could happen? Well, I, I, that's a terrible question. Mm. All right. Give that a shot. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank Good you. luck. Thank you. Take care. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Coming up, we find out which commander-in-chief was, in fact, the best cook, and also which one threw bread across the dinner table. That's up after the break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. It was April 1967, and Lyndon B. Johnson was hosting a state dinner for the Prime Minister of Japan. Mr. Prime Minister, Mrs. Sato, I think the objectives of the American people and the Japanese people are very much the same. But there was another guest of honor in attendance, one who was particularly interested in what was on the menu. Mmm, there's that seafood filling for the big, beautiful volivars. First course. How proud the lobster celebrated the scallop who finds his way into this marvelous melange. Yes, that, of course, was Julia Child. She made a documentary that went behind the scenes of the whole affair. Right now, I'm joined by her grandnephew, Alex Prudhomme. He co-wrote her memoir, My Life in France. But his latest book, Dinner with the President, takes a page from Julia's interest in the White House. Alex, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. 
So tell us a bit about Julia's first visit to the White House for this documentary. How did she get permission to go behind the scenes of a state dinner? Well, so Paul Child, her husband, had been a diplomat. So they had lived abroad for years, and they understood the value of diplomatic dinners. And they thought it would be interesting to show a side of the people's house that the people have never seen. And the first one she did was in 1967, when Lyndon Johnson was president. Um, 1967 was a tough year for Johnson, and he was kind of in a bunker mentality. He wasn't talking to the press much. But if anybody could charm... Johnson, it was Julia. Paul used to say she could charm a polecat. And indeed she did. And they spent three days shooting in and around the White House. So you see the guests coming in, including movie stars and cameras are flashing. Julia's wearing a wig and a kind of a snazzy coat. And then they uh, they show the entertainment, which was Tony Bennett. And Tony Bennett gets so excited, he rips his jacket off and he loosens his tie and he just starts crooning at the top of his lungs. And you see these diplomats all kind of stiff in the front row, and suddenly they break into smiles and they start laughing and clapping. And (laughs) Julia's voiceover, she says, you know, this was the point of the whole thing, that they got to know each other as human beings. They've had this delicious meal. They have this wonderful entertainment. And it actually has great political and diplomatic benefits. So going back to the beginning of presidential history, though, it was really interesting. You were talking about the Adamses. They are expected to host receptions and cover the food and beverage costs themselves. So in the early days, this was like having people over to dinner at your house, right? Yeah, and in their case, people that they didn't particularly want to have over for dinner. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Even worse. Nevertheless, there was social pressure for them to entertain at the president's house. And they had a kind of a grand opening for the public and uh, didn't serve much food. They served a lot of sweets and some drinks. And the sort of funny thing was that he was a great anti-monarchist, and yet his wife, Abigail, sat on a sort of throne-like chair and greeted guests. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then shortly thereafter, he lost the election to Thomas Jefferson, and then Jefferson brought in a whole different style of entertaining. Okay, you mentioned Jefferson so you you talk about a menu where there's a salad dressed with wine jelly, capon stuffed with ham, chestnut puree, artichoke bottoms, truffles simmered in chicken stock. He raised the game here? Big time. Uh, Jefferson was an American ambassador to Paris. And one of the interesting things to me was that he brought a young enslaved black man named James Hemings, with him, uh, with the express purpose of training him how to cook wonderful French food. And this young man became this remarkable chef. And food was very important for Jefferson's diplomacy. Uh, There was this uh, wonderful evening in 1790 when he had James Madison and Alexander Hamilton to his little place here in Manhattan and had this incredible meal over which they essentially saved the country. Uh, There was this terrible dispute over how to pay for America's revolutionary war debts and also where to build the new federal capital. And the tensions in public had gotten so stern that conversation had kind of stopped. So Jefferson convenes this wonderful dinner. James Hemings cooks. And by the end of the evening, they've worked out a deal. And it's only a slight exaggeration to say that this 
particular dinner saved the republic. And hmm. Jefferson's intuitive understanding of how food can be used as a political tool was something that came to him, but he also noticed that this is how the French court operated, that they had sort of developed the, the art and science of food as a political tool. And it's interesting to me how some of our statesmen understand the role of food in politics and diplomacy, and others don't. And it's a broad generalization, but my pet theory is that those who understand the role of food and food policy uh, tend to be better presidents than those that don't. You mentioned some presidents whose tastes were less refined. Garfield liked bowls of squirrel soup. William Howard Taft had a taste for possum. So you have Jefferson, and then you might have squirrel soup, and then you'd have a Parisian-trained chef, and then you go back to having possum. Is this an up-and-down story? Absolutely. I mean, look at the whipsaw that we've been through recently, where you go from Obama, who really had the most global palate of anyone, then you have Donald Trump serving burgers uh, proudly. And then after Trump, then you have the Bidens. And actually, Jill Biden is a, a very accomplished cook. So you have, even now, you have this great contrast uh, from administration to administration. So let's talk about the first ladies a little bit uh, and their role in all of this. They had to actually create something out of nothing, right, For a, a lot, in a lot of cases. Well, some first ladies loved the job. Others don't. You know, the first famous first lady, I think, was Dolly Madison. She uh, really upped the game in terms of weekly parties, and they were known as Mrs. Madison's squeezes because <laughs> these parties got to be so popular that people would have to squeeze into the room and they'd be, <laughs> you know, just jammed together. And if anybody started to uh, go against her husband's policies, she would disinvite them from the squeezes. And this was a very effective tool because it was the place to be seen uh, and heard. And then on the flip side, I just have to say there was Eleanor Roosevelt's kitchen, which was horrible. And I think it was also because of this woman she hired to sort of run things, Mrs. Nesbitt, I think. Yeah, Mrs. Henrietta Nesbitt. She was the housekeeper was her title. And she didn't do the actual cooking, but she was in charge of the White House food, and she would construct the menus, and she would buy the ingredients. And during the war, she was very much in favor of using rationed goods. Um, <laughs> and oddly enough, the White House was classified like a Navy tugboat, and they were given only a certain amount of food. And FDR was a real gourmet. Yeah. Uh, he loved fine food. He would get food sent to him from around the world, and he'd dream about fish baked in um, clay uh, or elk steaks, I remember he used to like. And, uh, uh, and yet he was being served uh, this horrible fare by Mrs. Nesbitt. And um, the reason that she got away with this is that she was under the protection of Eleanor Roosevelt. And during the war, she was cognizant of the role that the White House plays in setting an example. And the result was, you know, these jello salads with, you know, uh, crushed up candy canes in them and um, just horrible stuff. And in fact, Ernest Hemingway was invited to dinner there. And his third wife, Martha Gellhorn, insisted that they eat sandwiches before they flew from New Jersey down to Washington. And he said, we're going to the White House. What do you mean? And she said, oh, well, everybody knows the food there is horrible. And Hemingway describes this dinner as one of the worst he's ever had. Uh, you know, a limp 
beans, a, a very thin soup. And he says, you know, I will not be going back there ever again. <laughs> so Here's what I think. Mm. I think FDR was getting a secret meal later. I, I think he must have had some other thing going on because why would he give consent to eating horrible food day in and day out? Well, this is the question of much speculation. And one of the leading theories, which I ascribe to, is that Eleanor discovered that he was having not just one, but several affairs and oh, essentially revenge. used Mrs. Yeah. Nesbitt in her horrible food as a as a weapon of revenge. <laughs> <laughs> and quite effective, I would think. Quite effective, yeah. So now let's talk about some really disastrous presidential dinners there was one I remember where they opened up the White House to the public. I think huge crowds came in, and it was just a complete mess. There were several events like that. Uh, Andrew Jackson had a, a giant cheese at the house that brought a lot of people, and they kind of destroyed everything. But the most infamous one was when the Civil War was winding down. There was this great sort of tension, and uh, Abe Lincoln's second inauguration, things kind of broke loose and people started drinking and dancing and grabbing <laughs> food and tearing down curtains and smearing things into the rugs. And and, and Lincoln was assassinated uh, not long after that. And in retrospect, the, the Secret Service guy said, you know, he thinks that the crowd sensed something was going to happen to Lincoln that night. The other one that I have to say really stood out to me was with Queen Elizabeth and Ford in 1976. I think you wrote that Captain and Tennille actually sang at that yeah, they were the entertainment Love that night. or something, which is another yeah. <laughs> completely well, insane to thing the to scene. do. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, the bicentennial of 1976. <laughs> this is a really big deal. <laughs> and an hour before the whole evening was meant to kick off, a terrible storm moved in off the Potomac and just drenched everybody, knocked down the TV cameras, soaked the lawn. Uh, the dinner went on, uh, but the Queen gave a boring speech. Ford was bumbling around. <laughs> the Marine Band played a jaunty dance number when he and Queen Elizabeth were dancing, and it turned out it was the ladies a tramp. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then, yes, of course, <laughs> like the capper, the Captain and Tennille were the entertainment that night, warbling about muskrat love. That's just... <laughs> Unbelievable. And actually, Julia Child was there uh, covering it for television. And Julia said, well, that's not very queenly. <laughs> so. From Tony Bennett to the captain and Tennille. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was there, a other than Jefferson or maybe Kennedy, was there a point in time when if you could travel back, you would have liked to have had a dinner with a first family because the, you think the food was particularly interesting? It, it, obviously not with FDR, but who, who would you go back and eat with? Well, uh, there are two that come to mind. The first is U.S. Grant. Hmm. Grant um, had a sense of humor, and he used to shoot bread balls at his kids at table. And once he hit the British ambassador's wife, which startled <laughs> her, um, I think he would kind of be kind of fun to be around. Um, the other one is is Dwight Eisenhower, Ike, uh, who I believe is the most accomplished presidential cook. Really? As a general, he lived by Napoleon's dictum that an army runs on its stomach. Right. And when he was the president of Columbia University after the Second World War, he um, caused a big stir when um, the students asked him for a recipe, thinking that maybe Mamie would give them like a cake recipe or something. Instead, Ike sent them a two-page hand-typed recipe for his uh, vegetable soup. Hmm. He calls it two-day soup. 
and indeed it takes two days to make. I, I made it. it it's, it's incredible. You, you should try this, Chris. Mm. It's quite a production. Uh, but this uh, recipe was so popular that it was reprinted all across the country. It made headlines. Um, and I think he would be fun to eat with uh, and cook with. That's surprising because, you know, I was alive when Eisenhower was president. You, you never thought of him in that way. He, he was, seemed to be a slightly colorless, you know, obviously famous general, but you don't see him in the kitchen. Well, this is the thing uh, that I love about food because it's, you, you discover these guys as human beings in a way that we never thought we knew them. Alex, it's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. I've really enjoyed it. That was Alex Prudhomme. His book is Dinner with the President, Food, Politics, and a History of Breaking Bread at the White House. You can get the recipe for Eisenhower's two-day vegetable soup at MilkStreetRadio.com. You know, presidents are just people, some having a taste for possum, while others dine in the very best French cuisine. But beyond food, presidents have shown their quirky personalities in many other ways. John Quincy Adams, for example, used to get up early, walk to the Potomac, and go skinny dipping. Andrew Jackson sponsored cockfighting at the White House. Calvin Coolidge had an electric horse installed for exercise. Pat and Richard Nixon loved to bowl. Clinton was addicted to crossword puzzles. Obama loved comic books. He even appeared next to Spider-Man in his first year as president. So, as most historians would probably agree, the office of the presidency makes the man and not the other way around. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Alex I News finally finds an assistant to help him in the kitchen. The only catch, it's AI. That's up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's head into the kitchen with Lynn Clark to talk about this week's recipe, Assassin's Spaghetti. Lynn, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. How are you? Well, here's the gig today. You know, we go to Italy a fair amount, and the reason we do is that we discover either they make dishes we know here totally differently, like fettuccine alfredo, or there's a whole bunch of really interesting pasta recipes that never made it across the Atlantic. And one of the most interesting and simplest is this one, spaghetti al assassina, assassin or killer spaghetti. And you cook spaghetti like risotto. That's right. I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but I've never seen it before. And I looked into it because I was thinking, you know, did somebody die for us to get this recipe, killer spaghetti? Um, But actually comes from... A chef served this in his restaurant back in the 60s to a customer, and there was so much red chili pepper, and it was so spicy that the customer was like, are you trying to kill me? So that's how it got the name Killer's Spaghetti. And like you said, it's cooked like risotto, where you would brown something in risotto, arborea rice, in this case, spaghetti, and then add ladles full of broth and let that absorb, and that adds a ton of flavor to the pasta, But here we're going to really add more flavor by charring our spaghetti rather than just getting it nice and golden brown like you might for a risotto. We're going to really get some serious char on the pasta. And that's going to add some bitterness and smokiness that's going to really balance the sweetness of this tomato broth. Lots of olive oil, garlic, 
red pepper flakes and you're done. Right. right? We're using red pepper flakes here instead of fresh chilies just to make it even simpler and more pantry friendly. You know, this is just my kind of recipe because it's not about a wild and crazy ingredient list. It's about using a technique from one thing and applying it to another. So assassin spaghetti, everything comes right out of the pantry. Quick and easy to do, but boy, it really adds a lot of flavor. Lynn, thank you. You're welcome. You can get the recipe for spaghetti al assassina at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will be answering a few more of your kitchen questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Sasha. I'm from Wakefield, Massachusetts. Hello. How can we help you? I am attending a bachelorette party for my best friend at the end of this month out in the Berkshires. So I volunteered to make dinner one night. My problem is that I don't know what the kitchen is going to be like. So I'd like to do something that I can make ahead of time that's not a lasagna, essentially. What have you got against lasagna, Sasha? (laughs) I don't have anything against lasagna, but I think we all like to eat and we all like to um, try new things. So I'd like to do something a little bit more exciting. Okay, let me ask you a few questions. How many guests? Are they all meat eaters? How many courses? Anything else I need to know? So there are six of us. There's no restrictions food-wise. I would like to do, I think, like a salad, a main, and then some sort of dessert. Okay, are you an accomplished cook? I would say so. Not many things scare me, I would say. Well, I hate to entertain, (laughs) so I always make sure that I plan something that I can make ahead of time. Um, A lot of things that you make ahead of time are better, as they've said. So my showstopper is braised short ribs of beef. I can make it, I can bring it, I can reheat it. It's amazing. So that's what I would do for the entree, which isn't so terribly exciting, but it's a real crowd pleaser. And then for dessert, my go-to is a large crostata. I would take apples and cook them down a bit and add some dried fruit to it and some nuts and put it into a crostata, which is probably, as you know, an open-faced pie. But now let's see what Chris has to say. Well, first of all, let me spend 20 seconds on talking you into a lasagna. In, in, <laughs> no, but this is – I'm serious. In Bologna, they make a ragu bolognese with three kinds of meat, some carrots, some onions. And you do that ahead of time. It just sits in a pot for three hours. The great thing about this dish is it doesn't have any mozzarella in it. It has spinach noodles or plain noodles, the meat sauce, and then they make essentially a bechamel with Parmesan cheese, which takes minutes to make. It really is not hard to do, and it is one of the best things I've ever eaten in my life. And you happen to have a recipe for it in the magazine. It's just, you know, it's stunning, and you can make it ahead of time. So anyway, a few other ideas. Any kind of stew, obviously, is great. A tangia from Morocco, any kind of Italian beef stew. You know, that's great. You can do like Tafelspitz, which is an Austrian dish, which essentially boiled chuck roast. And then you take the meat out when it's fully cooked and then cook vegetables in it. So you could do that ahead of time, cook the vegetables to the last minute on top of the stove, serve it with some horseradish cream or a parsley sauce of some kind. That would be good. The other thing I do a lot, and don't hold this against me, is I, <laughs> I use an Instant Pot and I make really great stuff like butter chicken and other stuff. It's really easy to do. You can bring it with you. It reheats beautifully. You leave it in the pot, put it in the refrigerator, take it out, and put it under warm, and you don't need a kitchen. So that would be my list of things. I would consider 
that lasagna because I just made it two weeks ago. It is so good. I mean, and I, really, I hate lasagna. Yeah, I, I don't well, like dried out noodles on top. I don't like these big curdy cheese pieces. This is light. It really is light. It's delicious. You guys may have convinced me. I mean, when it's well done, it's really good. It's either that or the instant pot. <laughs> Sasha, I hope we gave you some ideas. Yeah, and, and best of luck. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. I really appreciate it. Have a good time at the party. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you're not sure what to make for dinner, give us a call anytime. 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Karen Betts from Phoenix, Arizona. How can we help you? I have a question regarding olive oil and why we can use olive oil to cook in a high heat oven, like say 425, 425 degrees, but we can't use it on the stovetop. We have to use like a higher smoke point oil. Very tricky question. And an excellent question, I might add. First of all, regular like refined olive oil actually has a pretty high smoke point of like 450 so, you know, extra virgin Evo olive oil is probably around 400 or so. Like a light olive oil or non-extra virgin olive oil is 450. So that would be okay. The problem with that is when you heat olive oil, you lose a lot of the volatiles, right? So a really mm-hmm. premium olive oil really should never be heated. It would be used as a drizzle or in a salad dressing. So I would never use quality, high-quality olive oil and roasting vegetables or whatever, I would just use grapeseed oil or whatever, sunflower oil. It's not going to really matter. But if you want to buy a less expensive refined olive oil for cooking, that's fine. And the smoke point will be 450 You might want to keep an expensive bottle of olive oil for drizzling and salad dressings, etc., and a less expensive, more refined oil for cooking, even high-heat roasting. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, that makes that kind of makes sense. I didn't realize that the temperature was, was that high of a smoke point. But yeah, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time to check in with Alex Inews in Paris. Hey, Alex, what's going on? Hey, Case, how are you? I'm good. Recently, Case, I got sent something. You know I'm a geek. And the company that sent me something, I think, knew it as well. I'm on the edge of my seat here. What was it? So they sent me a smart device that you're supposed to hang above your stove. And that device, and I'm just quoting what they say, this is the closest to having a master chef over your shoulder in your kitchen. They say that this device can help you cook dishes perfectly. Every single time. What? Exactly. With a claim like this, I thought, well, what's the technology? It's, it seems incredible. So I thought, okay, I'm going to try it. So I opened the box. I saw the device. It's pretty well made, full metal construction. It has two cameras on it. I installed it above my stove in my studio. There's an app on my phone that I use that is connected to that device. And that app has tons of recipes. I picked a simple one. I picked uh, how to make an omelette with feta, zucchini, and bell peppers. So, so just so I understand, yes. so you have a regular camera, an infrared yeah. camera, and 
And then what? It's like, what, what does it actually do? Uh, well, it talks to you. It's like a car oh, GPS, but I except see. it's like a stove GPS. Uh, okay. Okay. It. So w- when, you st- when you start the recipes, it says almost like start the recipe, okay. you know, heat the pan. And so right. I played dumb. I promised myself I wouldn't do anything out of my own will. Okay. Right. I, I was just following the orders. So the device prompted me to first to wait for the pan to be at the right temperature because it has a heat sensor so it's able to right. to feel if the pan is that's hot cool. enough that's pretty cool so then it asked me to crack the egg to cook the bell peppers the zucchini to add this and that to flip at this and that moment it was a little painful for me because i'm a cook and i'm just nobody tells me what i do in the kitchen but i was following it and in the end it turned out okay However, okay, I, I'm just, yeah, I, I'm gobsmacked here. <laughs> Would this work on any recipe, not just the ones they provide? No, you can't. You can't go freestyle with it. You have to follow their recipes. They've saved, they've recorded variables, so you have to follow their recipes. But there are many recipes available on their app. So it might be a limitations, but I, I'm afraid there is a little more than than just this little uh, limitation. I would be okay with this okay. one. So uh, as I was doing that first recipe, the machine was sometimes a little too quick to prompt me with guidance. Like, for example, I wasn't in front of my stove because I was looking for something and the device said something like flip the omelette and I didn't flip it. Then then he said, stir it. And I thought, oh, hold on a second. I, I didn't flip it. You saw that, right? I was talking to the smart device. <laughs> so I had a bit of a, a bit of a doubt growing in my stomach. So I set up a little trap, I'm afraid, afterwards. <laughs> okay? So I, I, I did another recipe, a very simple one. It's called Over Easy Egg. Mm-hmm. Except that I started the recipe with almost all the ingredients except the egg. Just to see what happens. So the device tells me to heat up the pan, which I did, to add a bit of butter, which I did as well. And when it felt like the temperature was right, it said, crack the egg inside. Oops, I don't have an egg. So I'm just doing nothing at that stage. And the device keeps going on. It kept going. It said, great, now flip the egg over. (laughs) And I'm thinking, my pan is empty. Are you even watching me? (laughs) And then so I flipped nothing in the air. And then after three minutes of cooking nothing apart from burning my butter, it said, great, plate it in a plate. You're you're good to go. And I thought, that's a shame. That's so sad. Well, this, this is not artificial intelligence. This is artificial stupidity. It's like, it's like properly dumb. Just think about their claim. Their claim was the closest to having a master chef over your shoulder. What kind of master chef? It, it, it's a master chef who's polished off two bottles of wine is sitting in the corner. <laughs> exactly. That's what he's it sleeping sounds in, like. He's dozing he's in sleeping. the corner. He's gone. Yeah. But that's so sad because, I mean, I was genuinely excited by having a device in my kitchen that, that would help me, but... I was expecting a smoke sensor, a gas sensor, some real intelligent. But in the end, that device, however dumb it was, it still raised a question. Do you think, Chris, and I'm interested genuinely in hearing your answer, do you think a device like this could have a, a spot in your kitchen? Something that would be really, really smart and that would adapt to whatever you do. And, and that would tell you, like, warning, Chris, this might burn or... I'm sensing smoke. Al- Alex, Alex, yeah. you know the answer to your question. Yeah, I know, I know the answer. <laughs> I don't want some I know the piece of software telling me to flip an omelet. I mean, look, it's, it, it's like Guitar Hero or something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you yeah, want yeah. to learn to play guitar, yeah. 
you got to put in the time. And that time you put in is the joy of learning how to cook. I know, but, but I'm also familiar with many people who are just terrified to cook. And the anxiety is just overwhelming. I, I have an idea. I'm going to do an, an app. It's called the Alex Chris app. That would be and good. every 10 seconds, all it does is say, great job. Oh, I could say just get a grip. Yeah, get a grip. Sharpen your bloody knife. Yeah, it's exactly. like, no, I, I just, look, I, I think the point is we're human. You're right. And technological solutions to the human condition really don't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, you, you should have to go through trials and tribulations to get good at something. That's where life is satisfying. So I, I'm, you know. <laughs> this is not working for me at all. I, I would love to, to argue against you, but at the same time, that device is wrapped back in its own package in a box. Good. So Good. That, that's it for it. Alex, uh, you know, nothing like uh, artificial stupidity, uh, which is probably also <laughs> expensive. Uh, let's just do it ourselves. Alex, thank you. Thank you so much. That was YouTube host Alex iNews. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Milk Street. Just go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can become a member, get full access to all of our recipes, access to live stream cooking classes, and free standard shipping from the Milk Street store. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions. And thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.